This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the levelized costs of energy. So renewable uh, renewable sources, including solar and wind, are now the lowest two electricity forms, which is pretty cool news. We'll talk a little bit about fishermen and some of their worries, some of their woes as far as uh, offshore wind coming to the U.S., um, Siemens Gamesa has their 11 megawatt uh, offshore turbine now certified as typhoon resistant. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about glass versus carbon fiber, repowering for old wind farms, and some of the challenges and just interesting tech involved there. So uh, before we get going, I want to remind you that in the description of this podcast, whether you're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, number one, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. But number two, you'll find Uptime Tech News, which is our new weekly newsletter. You can easily subscribe to that and just get a notification from us every Thursday morning when the podcast drops. So it's right on your inbox. You can click through, listen to the new episode, as well as get some other interesting tech news from around the web, as well as clips from the past uh, from past episodes. So be sure to sign up for Uptime Tech News in the description of this podcast. So Alan, how are you, sir? Let's start with uh, the levelized cost of energy. Renewable sources are now cheaper than ever, and solar is in the number one uh, spot with a $37 cost, and onshore wind is now second with $40 um, per megawatt hour. So this has been a pretty big change, a long time coming, the, this cost decrease. And now, well below gas and other 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 forms, it has. And the the latest data is interesting to look at. Uh, on the solar side, I think there's just an emphasis by China to flood the market with cheap solar panels, and that seems to be the driver because Europe and United States and <clears throat> other parts of the world are not really producing solar cells, so they seem to be mostly coming out of China. On the wind turbine side, the, the cost of energy is going down as the turbines get bigger. Think of it that way. It's just producing more power for, <clears throat> you know, it's still expensive to install, but uh, you're generating so much power out of a certain part of land, which just makes it more efficient. Um, and obviously, uh, the wind turbine market has made a lot of improvements in the last several years, which is fantastic. The one, the one item in that list, because it, it talked about gas and... Uh, nuclear and the cost of nuclear has gone up even though we haven't in the united states haven't built a nuclear power plant in years which is weird and it said well it's just because regulations have driven up the cost okay uh nuclear is in our future it has to be uh, if we're talking about reducing co2 emissions that's one gigantic way of doing it where 
the cost of energy will be relatively low. You can produce it day and night. It has all those benefits that you're looking for in, in a low CO2 emissions front. Um, same thing for wind, right? So it's going to be a combination of all these players and not necessarily eliminating some of them, particularly nuclear. I think it's all going to have to play together if we're going to transition to a more electric-based economy uh, with uh, the onset of electric vehicles and all the other things that are going to come online in the next 10 years. You're going to need a lot more electricity produced. Wind, offshore wind is going to be big um, in Europe and in the United States, uh, but I also think nuclear is going to have to be part of that mix. Yeah, I, I, I've always been interested in nuclear power just because I've you hear the one side, obviously, like the horrors of, you know, Three Mile mm -hmm. Island and, and all these. Uh, but on the other side, those are outliers and nuclear is actually really safe and really efficient and really powerful. Yep. Um, yep. Just know, you know, just, there's just that emotional response that people want to be nowhere near a nuclear power plant and, and somewhat rightly so. Uh, but it seems to get a bad rap compared to what they say. Yeah, you know, with modern modern technology, what we know about it now compared to what we knew about it, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, like we can do this really, really well and safely and cheaply, and it should be a part of our future. Um, but it's just, again, fighting that public fear of a nuclear power plant where people think their children are going to grow up and to be have a, a third and fourth arm and maybe <laughs> some nice gills, yeah. which I'd take gills right. personally. But, you know, it's... Um, there were some just, you know, God, I mean, the, the meltdowns of the past were just horrific and they still have an environmental, they're still a disaster, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it seems like that's going to really be tough to get public support going forward. It, it will be, uh, but the latest generations of nuclear seem to be, have, are much more efficient than they were literally 50 years ago, roughly, when... Most of the, of the nuclear capacity is built in the United States, at least. So the, <clears throat> those improvements and the efficiency and uh, they're actually recycling some of the used material back into the to the new reactors makes a lot of sense uh, overall. Because it, it if we're trying to weigh everything out and figure out if it's just about CO2 emissions, then nuclear has to be part of it. Wind has to be part of that. Solar has to be part of that. They all have to be part of that. We can't ignore one at the benefit of another sort of thing. And I think that that trade-off's going on. Um, there seems to be this disparate discussions about, well, if we do wind, then we don't have to do nuclear. Or if we do, do nuclear, we don't have to do wind. Neither one of this is correct. You're going to do both because every part of the world has different needs and different access to different things such as wind and solar in some places because where it's hot and sunny and windy versus places where it's cold and not as sunny. Maybe they're in mm -hmm. a nuclear situation, right? Or in, even in a gas situation because that's what they have access to. Um, but globally, uh, you know, where we're going is less coal plants, more renewables. And that's, 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 that's going to be a good thing long term. Uh, we just got to let the levelized cost of energy play out and that's that's what rosie barnes was talking to us about a couple of weeks ago and a couple episodes ago uh it's a really about levelized cost of energy and what that looks like and balancing that out versus other forms of energy and wind has to be competitive and it looks like it's getting more and more competitive which is great well and speaking of hurdles um obviously as you install these offshore wind farms and get all the preparations in line there's more and more people affected one of them being fishermen so the fishing industry is starting to feel a little bit like hey you're just sort of steamrolling us 
um, you know, this is all we've ever known for many of these, you know, generational um, fishermen families. And, you know, all along the, the Northeast, right, Connecticut, Maine, Rhode Island, all these spots. So there's a lot of people that make their living from that. Obviously, seafood will continue to be a thing. Like, that's not going away. But at the same time, there's <laughs> been a pretty pretty tough environmental impact from commercial fishing as well. It's not necessarily the best thing for our oceans. So, uh, Alan, I mean, how much credence do we need to give to fishermen? Um, how, how do you see this sort of compromise playing out? I mean, is this really a big a deal as, as maybe they, they think that it is? I think it's going to be a big deal until we get to the details. And in the Northeast of the United States, the way these bigger um, industrial efforts are dealt with is like everybody's got their two cents and it's just a lot of clamor. And you got to get your stake in, right? You got to plant your stake early and, and make sure that your corner of the economy doesn't get affected at all. That's that's the goal here. And as as the progress is made and the definitions of what actually is going to happen get laid out and explained to everybody then the real stakeholders start to come up and and in in certain cases i don't think it's really going to affect uh the fish industry in the united states so much uh, when we get to the details just because it sounds like we're going to have massive 10 12 15 megawatt wind turbines off the coast of new england and in order to do that, you're going to end up spacing them relatively far apart, which then reduces the stress on the fishermen. Like I got to, I got to take my boat through this cascading <laughs> towers <laughs> that are planted in my way, and maybe affects my fishing, right? And I think bigger turbines. So here, here's some of the things that I think as a fisherman I would worry about. You know, wind turbines are not free of oils and contaminants, right? I mean, it takes oils and hydraulic fluids and stuff to make those things go. If a wind turbine catches on fire or has a major hydraulic leak or something, and that ends up dumping into the ocean, does it affect my fishery? Possibly, yes, it sure could, right? And if it happens to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, I would want to, to have some say about that, about how we're going to monitor that. And I think that's fair, right? And I think the wind turbine industry is aware of that, and we'll we'll take measures to mitigate that. Because Dan, one of the one of the things that we've been talking about on offshore wind is like how do you maintain all this stuff and how often are you going to maintain it and how are you going to do this like who's going to go up and grease all the bearings all the time and make sure there's no major oil leak or hydraulic leak in, in some of these turbines i don't know how how's it going to happen how often is that done it may get mandated into some sort of law or, or code uh just because of the concerns from the fisheries that seems possible to me, and I think it kind of makes sense too. Don't you don't you think so? That it, you know, if a wind turbine caught on fire and flipped over and landed <laughs> in the ocean, that would It'll be a be problem. A it would be a nightmare, and there's certainly that's right. going to happen at some point. You can't have all sure. these wind turbines out there in the world and not have one of them fall over or just some sort of thing happen. It's going to happen eventually. Sure. Um, yeah, and I. I don't know. I, I go back and forth with a sentiment like this is all I've ever known um, because I think all humans at some point have to reinvent themselves. I don't know. I don't know how much. And this is just me personally, in my own opinion. I don't know how much sympathy I have for that line of thinking with your 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 profession. Because, um, again, like, I mean, we don't have cobblers, really. We don't have blacksmiths True. like we used to. Um, we don't have coopers like we used to. I mean 
barrels are in high demand because who makes barrels anymore, <laughs> right? I mean, this is a right. very real thing yeah, for like right, the whiskey true. industry and, right. you know, all, all these. Um, so, I mean, I, I think at some point this, we do need to care for the fishermen and the economic impact of some of these, you know, potentially stomped on. Um, but at the same time, who speaks for the marine life? I mean, maybe these wind farms protect marine life because now, yeah, we can't Good. fish these to death. You know, like this is going to give some of this marine life a chance to recover because it's going to be a little bit off limits. I mean, the ocean is gigantic. Uh, I feel True. a little bit like a little bit of, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's okay that we have a chunk of uh, a chunk of the sea blocked off for a little while or it just it's just going to make it a little bit tougher to wreak havoc on some of our marine life. So, I, you know, well, it, I think there's yeah. give and take both ways. Um, I think the fishermen should be protected. I think don't think they should lose their livelihoods, but I think people also need to start to see the writing on the wall, which is that, you know, commercial fishing in general is getting harder and it takes a toll on the planet and people maybe need to consider some sort of, I don't know. It's easier said than done to just switch the thing you've always done. I totally understand that. Right. Um, you've got so much invested in it. You have your, your whole, all your savings and all possible, uh, you know, retirement income tied up in a boat, your equipment, all the stuff. If that goes to zero, you're really in trouble, right? But and that I, also still goes back to sunk costs. And I think it's really a human, a, a fallacy of ours. Like you're in a marriage for 20 years and neither of you are happy. And you say, well, this is, you know, we've, we've spent so much time. It's like, well, do you want to keep banking on the past or do you want to be happy going forward? You know, you like I was a baseball player for 30 years of my life. It was really hard to move on and I had to. Right. And that's not I mean, it was my profession for a little while, but humans are surprisingly good at remaking themselves. And I mean, this yes. is certainly is not a lecture <laughs> to, to fishermen, but um, I think all of us have to start to think at some point to what's coming next, because a lot of jobs have been automated out. Right. A lot mm. more jobs will be automated out in the future. And. I don't know. I think resilience is part of this equation. I mean, I think there, again, there should be concessions and they should be taken care of, but I think there needs to be a level of resilience where like, look, the, the industry for fishermen might shrink. And so 20% of you might need to move on and find new, new work. And people need to start to consider that. Yeah. And it's not really any different than any other part of the economy in particular no, the United not. States. Right. It's not. And it, it, it was interesting you bring that up because we were driving through sort of eastern upstate what they call upstate new york and we happened to pull off to uh, for a moment to get something to drink anyhow so we're driving through this town <clears throat> i don't want to name the town but uh at one point they had a huge huge uh factory there and it's just mm -hmm. you know grass right and you go wow there's there are literally thousands of jobs laying there what happened and where is everybody well everybody's moved on right uh, at least hopefully and mm -hmm. i think that that exists in a lot of industries along the coastlines of the northeast where we've seen so many changes over the last 50 years and this is just going to be another one but and, you know and and the hopes hopes are that the wind industry can provide a jobs that would not have otherwise been there that's the hope manufacturing jobs engineering jobs uh you know, quality jobs, maintenance jobs, technicians, really high paying, moderately high to high paying jobs that wouldn't have been there. And so you may see a resurgence of communities up and down the Northeast that 
were just a shipping dock 50, 100 years ago that hasn't been active, and now they're back in service again. And and, and that that's going to take time to flesh out. I think the, the, the key to all this is making sure there's just clarity and that everybody understands what is about to happen. Well, and that's the, uh, part of my other point is that um, fishermen are not one trick ponies these are no. skilled people these are not Very. stupid people they you know they right. even if that's what all they've yeah. ever known you could easily see fishermen being great machinists great welders just great craftsmen or just i mean working with your hands and being adaptable there's so many things that can go wrong in a boat right i mean this is not easy work it's not unskilled labor right so no, no um, way there's a lot i feel like there's a lot of jobs that they could potentially pivot to that are in sort of a you know, and a lot of them could be servicing offshore wind, or it could just be. There's a real, there's a dearth of workers in skilled labor today, and I think there's a lot of jobs to pivot to. That you right. know, everyone is go to college and be a knowledge worker. Well, where are the people that yeah. want to work hard with their hands and and do that right. sort of work, <laughs> like being a commercial fisherman? That's hard work that people don't want to do. Yep. But it. So I think there are also opportunities out there. All right, so moving on, uh, Typhoon Turbines. We've talked about Typhoon-proof stuff in the past. And um, so Siemens, Gamesa, their SG11.0-200DD, direct drive. Uh, always love Siemens, Gamesa's uh, names. A very, very catalog of them. Um, but this has achieved uh, Typhoon certification that it can take up to... 57 meters for 10 seconds or 57 meter per second per 10 minutes and three second gusts of up to 79.8 meters per second of wind. So, um, Alan, obviously like, you know, the companies that certify these, um, know what they're doing. They have some pretty high tech models, all this stuff, but, um, do you think these still need to be seen? I think everybody's going to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. I I think they're going to have to, Obviously, laboratory testing and computer simulation are one thing, and then putting it on a site is a completely different animal and has been for a lot of different things, and particularly lightning, uh, where we have had all kinds of lightning tests done on wind turbines, and yet we get phone calls all the time about wind turbine blades getting destroyed or damaged with lightning, and they went through the IEC testing, but it doesn't seem to hold out in their particular part of the world. I don't see that any different on the typhoon rating either. I think the typhoon rating is probably going to be 90% right. That's the way a lot of these engineering things go. The The specs are covering the 90 percentile case, not the 100th percentile case. So there will be sometime, somewhere, a wind event, typhoon event that may exceed what they have qualified their tournament to. And we're going to have to deal with that. It's, it's just like uh, any other cataclysmic event you don't really know how much the earth is willing to throw at you until it happens and then mm-hmm. you adjust new orleans and the floods uh fukushima nuclear reactor in japan <laughs> pick them pick them it's all <laughs> it's all a little bit of variability to it that you just can't design for the worst case all the time it just it just eats up too much engineering and cost and it's not worth it for that one percent possibility so most likely it's going to be okay it's just that there is that one percent possibility something's going to go wrong yeah and it's funny that we've discussed that where you know if 
the lifespan is X amount of years and the runtime needs to be X amount of days per year. Right. Then, you know, if, and the likelihood is that it, there might be a hurricane that can take one down, you know, in one out of every 20 years on average, then it probably doesn't matter. However, right. as we talk about economic impact of fishermen to wildlife, all that other stuff, it might not financially matter, but it matters to the ocean if a couple of these get downed <laughs> and there's yeah. some sort of fallout from that, obviously. So yeah, um, I'm sure the insurers are considering that as well. Like uh, I was watching a, a classic movie for a, a little bit the other day, Fight Club. And you know that scene in Fight Club where he's talking about what he does on the airplane yeah. with this woman about how they decide to either do a recall or not. And it's purely financial, right? If it kills right. a ton of people, but it's cheaper than doing the recall, then they don't do the recall. And those people are just going to, they know people are going to die from their automobiles, right? Um, so obviously that's going to be a thing too, where I'm sure you have to project, hey, if one of these goes down, these fluids are inside it if they leaked out or if this happened or this happened what would right. be the um you know the regulatory fallout from it how much are we going to get fined by the epa how much is this cleanup going to cost the salvage to pull up a gigantic turbine out of the depths of the ocean all those things i'm sure are factored into the insurance calculations but yeah they they, they have to be on some level and the one that i always wonder about the most and it's just the typhoon is is one, right? The high speed winds and the rain and everything swirling around, which is not good for a wind turbine. But also, like in a tsunami event where you have an earthquake and you have uh, a number of underground or underwater cables that are tying all these floating wind turbines together, what happens there? How much load can you put on an underground cable before he starts ripping yeah, the question. cables apart? And mm-hmm. then you don't have not only do you have a flood uh, uh, or a big tidal wave that hit the community which is bad but then you don't have any power or ability to get power back up again because all your cables are all snapped off under the ocean so there's, a, there's a lot of different variables here we haven't don't have a lot of experience with and engineering wise like i said you try to do the best you can with what you know at the time and what you can afford to do and then the rest is uh hoping that the event doesn't happen in that one percent case but that's the one that gets me is like tsunami. That's the one I really worry about. How does what does that look like? And because tsunamis, we don't even know that much about them, honestly. We just don't. We didn't. We didn't. A couple of years ago, didn't even know when they were occurring. And now we have a tsunami alert system, which is great. But what are you going to do if you got a set of turbines off the coast of Japan or somewhere? How does that even work? I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of engineering that still needs to go on and offshore, and those parts of the world where major wave and wind events can still occur yeah it's uh mother nature is a cruel mistress she's a (laughs) yeah (laughs) quirky always always unpredictable that mother Mm. nature so um so i want to talk a little bit about glass fiber versus carbon fiber um with wind turbines going offshore and getting bigger obviously there's going to be more carbon fiber added to these the blade design and obviously that challenges lightning protection um do you see do you see blades becoming increasingly more filled with carbon fiber and spar or um are they going to try to have to find a balance with uh, lightning issues as they get offshore because like, obviously like the the least maintenance possible is ideal for offshore right there's right. it's so hard to get people out there to fix them right um 
is it good? I mean, obviously carbon fiber is important for weight savings and, and all the strength and all that stuff as they get bigger, but then there's a little bit of a trade-off of increased lightning um, activity and punctures in the middle of the blade away from the receptor. Right. Um, do you find there, there, do you think there's going to be a trade-off I and mean, where do you fall on this sort of issue as blades get bigger offshore? So what's happening now is, you know, carbon fiber, it's shrink to weight ratio is much better than fiberglass. So you can make longer blades with less weight, which is what you want because adding weight adds, requires more strength. It's a sort of a vicious cycle with fiberglass. It's useful to a point, but then once you cross that 80 meter, 100 meter range, you're going to have to have some level of carbon fiber in there to keep the weight down. Now, uh, you know, in terms of lightning protection, it does drive you to do different things. I, I just saw on LinkedIn today uh, repair that was being made on a wind turbine with carbon fiber spars, spar webs, uh, where they had aluminum mesh inside the blade where the spars were to provide a conductive path um, mm. along with the carbon. So they were trying to protect the carbon from a lot of light, carrying a lot of lightning current and they're doing repair internally so you got this it's, it ends up being a more complicated repair as you're trying to put this metal mesh back where you have grounded out um, so we're already into that what do we do bit uh, and there is uh, been a, a more conscious effort to make sure that the designs are lightning proof in a sense Vestas I think had some problems with that at least that's the story on the street um, you're going to see more and more metal meshes being used internally on blades to protect the spars from lightning strike or like just carrying lightning current. And then what happens at the tips and at the receptors is going to be fascinating. You see more and more lightning receptors being placed on the trailing edges of blades away from where the carbon is. So they're trying to catch it on the trailing edges of these blades and then direct it downward in a controlled means uh, so they're not having any damage happen to the carbon section of the blade. That's the philosophy. So all that all that makes sense, and you see those sort of transitions happen right now. What we don't have a lot of history on, though, is how how well those systems are working because there's no feedback mechanism. So unless you're the OEM and you're keeping track of how your designs are doing, you don't have a lot of knowledge, especially after the five-year warranty period is up. You don't have a lot of history but unless a, a larger customer calls and complains like a mid-american uh yeah so there is going to be more and more carbon particularly offshore has to be uh there's going to be more and more emphasis on lightning protection because you're right you don't want to have to go out and service these things so the the, the blade i saw today was using aluminum mesh on the inside well, aluminum mesh is great, but the problem with aluminum mesh is that that stuff corrodes in salt water. Mm. So exposing that to the salt corrosive salt environment over 20 years, most likely that aluminum is going to go from aluminum into aluminum powder dust, aluminum oxide. And it's just going to break it down. Um, so the environmental, uh, addressing the environmental uh, sealing and uh, corrosion prevention measures are going to be really come to the forefront on offshore well they haven't really done too much about it onshore so finally let's talk a little bit about repowering so uh vtol has picked iea to repower uh, a 240 megawatt wind farm in illinois where i used to live for nine years yeah um, so go illinois getting more power um <laughs> But it's an interesting prospect of them repowering this. They're, they're going to change out uh, generators, um, nacelles, hubs, blades, adapter rings, stuff like that. 
Um, there's 109 on this particular farm. This particular farm, they're going to repower 109, and they're going to decommission five. Um, and it seems like this is going to become a more and more common thing. Obviously, this this farm was uh, created in 2010. Now here, 11 years later, they've decided that it makes financial sense to go ahead and upgrade everything, and they're going to. It looks like they're going to produce uh, 60% more capacity. Um, annually when they're done these upgrades in July of 2022. Um, so, I mean, do you expect to see more of this, Alan, as we go forward, these repowering efforts? Yeah, uh, because the infrastructure is there. All the the, the foundations and towers will get, get reused, yeah, right. the, power, the cables, yeah, all that Cables, stuff. transformers, I think maybe they have to update the transformers, but the, the towers are there, the concrete pads are there. As long as they can carry the additional load of uh, the, the, the larger blades and the larger nacelle, they go along with it, uh, then awesome. Because you know what the winds are. I mean, that's one thing mm-hmm. you definitely know because you've been there for a long time. So you know what the winds are. And you know what the increase in production is going to look like. Uh, it's, and it's just a lot less expensive because you have you would just extend the leases with all the landowners that you have. So there's not a lot of starting over again and doing all that government uh, approaching the local governments and local fire departments and all that stuff that, that happens in the United States. Uh, it's more of, hey, we're just going to improve what's here. We're not going to alter too much visually then then obviously the blades are gonna be bigger but essentially you're gonna have a wind turbine in the same spot doing the same thing uh and it's just going to extend the life and which means everybody around there that's getting paid as a percentage of how much power is being generated is going to make more money for a longer period of time so you're going to get a, a a bonus in in the mailbox which is always always appreciated yeah. but I, I it's I, I think this is really interesting because uh, several years ago i think the emphasis was you know just knock over the turbines, put new stuff in and go. And we've gotten away from that. And that's an interesting way because it's going to lower the cost to improve the power performance. But as we saw recently, and we had that in our newsletter recently, the video in New Mexico of the the explosive demolition of what 90 turbines i think it was 90 turbines down in new mexico i think they're yeah, that mitsubishi. Was cool. i like that video yeah <laughs> right they're mitsubishi 1000s i think one megawatt turbines oh, they just basically exploded the the towers and collapsed them over and then i guess hauled them off in trucks that's not good in my opinion i think if it could have repowered those those uh towers was something that's generates more power awesome then maybe the towers weren't tall enough to repower them maybe that was it maybe that was the key there yeah and that's a question for you is i mean say you're going to build a brand new farm from scratch today do you perhaps overbuild the towers or overbuild the foundation on the idea that maybe in five or ten years probably more like ten you might repower it and put a way bigger generator so like we build we build the capability for holding you know something 30 percent bigger and heavier than what we're gonna put on it so that way in 10 years we can definitely reuse the foundation with a significant bump in weight and all that stuff and still be totally good maybe they didn't think of that back in the day maybe they have already been thinking of this and that's not really an issue i'm sure there's i mean obviously these things are always overbuilt right to withstand there are lots of stuff but then you can't max out that capacity completely because then you run the risk of it Right, you know. right, right. You get into lifetime issues, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But I do think that's a possibility now that we could design the wind turbines such that they, after a ten-year period, you know they're going to put new blades and the cells on them. 
yeah, I think that's a definite possibility. It gets back to that discussion that we've had with several of our guests about what to do in the design phase. Do you make the ultimate wind turbine, probably the most expensive version of a wind turbine you can make, or do you make something that's less expensive that utility-wise works, knowing full well that you're going to have to provide maintenance to it and maybe upgrade it in five to 10 years. And that's just built into the economics of the model such yeah. that you're going to make that bonus and power that you already kind of pre-built it in there. You have money set aside to go do that so that the overall economic model gets even more profitable, especially as you get to years 10 plus, which is where a lot of other wind turbine sites start to drop off, right? So you could... All of a sudden, like they're doing in Illinois right now, you could see a major increase in power output, which is a major increase in the amount of money you're getting paid. Those are big benefits to everybody. So I, I think there is going to be a shift. And somebody has done their homework on determining whether the, the towers and the concrete pads that are already in place can handle the additional load. Because the, the rotor diameter is just getting bitter, bigger, which means there's more load onto the turbine itself and in the tower. So they must have over-designed it in some level, and some, or, or they're yeah. providing some reinforcements, which they could do also. But it is a fascinating thing because you'd hope that these wind turbine sites you have in operation now, you could have an operation for longer periods of time. And so this is sort of on the brilliant scale of engineering stuff that you wouldn't have expected, but it's really interesting. And we, we're going to follow it more as it, as it pops up. Well, and the other question is, it, like, in this case, these turbines made it 11 years, right? Right. So then if you start to think about the common scourge of uh, turbine blades right now, leading edge erosion, well, if you say, mm -hmm. well, maybe from year zero to five, leading edge erosion is not a problem. And then from right. five to eight, it starts to really take a toll. Right. Um, but if we've only got to get to year 11, maybe at year eight, we put on some vortex generators and some aerodynamic add-ons just to, right. and don't we, we, we never, do. we, we never fix the leading edge erosion because as long as we can get ourselves to year 11 or whatever, we're just swapping out we're the cool. blades and problem yeah. solved. Never have to bother with it. So that's right. That's um, totally right. A and I think the, the, the other piece to this is the, the advent of blade recycling that's going to happen. And I know we're, we're talking with one of the leaders in that industry, that growing industry, and hopefully they're going to have them on as a guest. But if you can recycle those blades so you don't have to bury them, then the PR cost is much lower. So you're going to recycle that into another wind turbine base, probably, concrete base. Uh, so it becomes less obtrusive to then basically pop the top <laughs> pop the top off a wind turbine, recycle mm -hmm. it, and then put a new one in there. It's just less... Uh, PR damage, less cost, less all this other stuff that goes along with it. It gets more economical. And I think you're right, Dan. I think you're right. I think the the VG additions at year five or six or whatever that's going to be to get it to year 10 will then allow you to, to put new blades on and repower it. And that's, that is an interesting development. I think, I think we're going to see more of it. That's why I want to keep our ear to the ground on it. Well, that's going to do it for this week of the Uptime Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. And subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes, whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, or YouTube. So thanks again for watching, and we will see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.
Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.